Welcome back to TVM. Um, we've got uh, my third podcast today, which I'm super excited about. Um, he's a very busy man. He's given us his time. This is Olympic champion, uh, Steve Mesler, and I'm very, very pleased to have him. So we're going to talk to, um, I love talking to athletes who have been there, done it all in bobsleigh, and certainly Steve with his Olympic gold has been there and done it all. Um, and I think a lot of people will resonate with his message. Um, a lot of people will be interested in life after sport, and certainly the successes Steve has had um, is, are pretty exceptional. So we've got half an hour. I want to get into it, and I want to get the most out of Steve as I, as I can. Um, uh, we've already had a bit of a delay. Absolutely my fault, but um, we'll cover that another time. I'll probably put that in the Instagram caption. Well, I thought we were bl- I thought we were blaming your girlfriend on that one. Oh no, we can do that as well. Yeah, that's not- yeah, yeah. We'll just do that. <laughs> Steve, pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me. It's brilliant. Uh, great, great, great to be here, man. I, I'm I'm excited. I love what you're doing. No, well, you know what? This is uh, when you first contacted me last year. Um, when I was in, so I was in quarantine in Oberhof, and uh, and you contacted me, and it was after I think I'd done the four man loading fails video. And you'd contacted me, and you were so generous. You donated money and stuff. You put you put most of the brakemen in hats, so they have you to thank for that big hat haul. And that was brilliant. We was uh, it was in Winterberg. They got dished out. So there was uh, you know just a big box, and I just said, look, I have no idea how because because it was so difficult getting everybody together. I was like, just it was it was crazy. Yeah, it was it was mid it was height of winter height of winter time pandemic so yeah no it was it was you know amazing that we got it to be out there anyway and so that when that was a huge thing and, and everyone loved it and people were wearing it and you know it was on the live streams for the world cup and that was that was that was totally down to use that was that was fantastic and, and like i said so um that was my first experience of getting to know getting to know you and everything and and you'd sent me in the couple of email back and forth we had you'd sent me videos of the stuff you guys got up to in placid where Back in you know, back in your day, I don't want to put it too much like that. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was laugh like, it up, laugh it up. But, but where you guys had, um, it was like your early days attempt at kind of what I'm doing with this, with 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 the Breakman. You know, you guys showing you know the fun you had, the the characters you had, and it wasn't just all about you know you wanted to go out there to win, but you wanted to go out and you had you wanted to make the most of the experience and the time you you had to do it. So you know, it was a, there was a real resonation with uh, values there and that. Uh, so yeah, like I said, it's a real pleasure to talk to you now. So I mean, t- tell me about you. Tell me about your journey. Tell me about how you got into this crazy <laughs> world and, and where you are now. I need to shut up. That's a big. That's a big. That's a big question. That's a big. That's a bunch of big questions. Well, first of all, first of all, Greg, I love what you're doing. I like. I mean, I to see Breakman and Push Athletes being elevated as a brand in of itself, and not just the things behind the the drivers. Um, not just uh, you know, not just it, it's not the you know the drivers and then there's the sled and the runners and the brakemen and the push athletes to actually elevate them i love that um the the athletes out there are beasts um the men and the women that are doing it these days are light years ahead of where light years ahead of where i was i think if i could just like hold on and you know if i could just hold on to the push bar with the athletes that are out there now i'd be happy um (laughs) yeah you know i i slid for 10 years i went to three olympic games um you know got to fall flat on my face in uh, 2006 and then got to do the opposite in 2010 and my experience was amazing. You know, being an American, I, I learned how to speak German uh, for multiple reasons. One, one, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. I'm talking to you, Andre, out there. Uh, but I wound up by the end of my career, I could sit. You know, Andre Lange and I would would hop in the car together in between in between races instead of us packing a sled truck full together. I would just hop in Andre and I would just speak German the whole time, and that was an amazing part of the experience for me. And um, and you know we. I got to come through bobsled in an, in an era where it had been the beginning of my career had been not a functional place between the teams. It was not a friendly place. It was um, the old, you know, the old days of the way Christoph Langen and Pierre Luders and Todd Hayes and these guys ran the 
ran it, it was very adversary. And Andre, you know, I give Andre Lange a lot of credit for coming in and changing the culture, single-handedly changing the culture into a place where the guys competed against each other, but they competed with each other. And that was the biggest difference is we did both. And before us, before Andre, or at least the generation that was before Andre, really just competed against each other. And yeah, he sounds like my kind of guy. It was a really neat. It was a really neat evolution to happen, and like watching the evolution happen. Um, and he was so dominant at the time, just like um, you know, just like the Germans are again today. That was Andre back back in the early mid and throughout all of the two thousands. I mean, in fact, the first Olympic race he lost was the the one that we won. Oh wow, God, that's a that's a cool stat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Andre's got Andre and Kevin Kuske have four gold medals and a silver. And I'm I am proud, Kevin Kuske, you're out there too, buddy. I'm proud, to, <laughs> proud, to, I'm know. proud to know that I was the one that 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 handed that to you. Good work, man. But t- so tell me about your um, so your sporting pedigree. So you you're a decathlete, mm-hmm. right? You're a multi eventer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jack, Jack Jack of all trades, master of none. Brilliant, perfect in bobsleigh. Um, yeah. And uh, and and, and so how did that that metamorphosis occur? Like, what what what? How did you find Placid and the horrors yeah, that awaited would... you there? Yeah, you know, for me, I was. I was a national champion in high school in the U.S. in pentathlon, so indoor decath, indoor version of decathlon five events, and got a scholarship to University of Florida, and and then was a failure. <clears throat> Spent four years at at UF as a Florida Gator. So um, you're a Gator, yeah. I was a Florida Gator, yep. And actually, the one of the coaches, a guy named Mike Holloway, Mouse is his nickname. Mouse was the sprint coach when I was there, and Mouse tomorrow we'll be at opening ceremonies with you know with the track team or wherever they are going to be yeah, during well. covid times of tokyo um one of the best sprint coaches in the world and i was lucky to go from from mouse in college to Stu Stu mcmillan who's written for you guys who i yeah, think yeah, yeah. is certainly one of the best track and and, and speed uh, bobsled coaches that are out there in the world today but i was at florida and i had spent four years being hurt I had, uh, you know, ankle, ankle, ankle injuries, and then I got creative and tore my elbow in half with a Tommy John, had to have Tommy John surgery, um, throwing javelin from decathlon. And I was uh, two days out of Tommy John surgery. It was August of 2000. I was sitting on my couch, pissed, depressed, you know, went through that moment that all of us have to go through as athletes, which is, is this it? Am I done being an athlete? Am I done with, with organized sport? Um, And we all, you haven't quite been there yet, Greg, but like we all get there eventually. We have to make that decision. And now I'm done. And I was sitting on the couch, 21, going on 22 years old. Arm was in the sling, still in pain on all kinds of painkillers and drugs and meds um, to overcome and, 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 you know, overcome, fight off, fight off infection and, and go through the pain that is Tommy John reconstruction, reconstruction of the elbow. And I sat there and maybe it was the meds, but I had this guy named Jerry Clayton, who's now the head coach of track and field at University of Michigan. Jerry Clayton had recruited me to Florida. And in the 90s, he had a guy named Rob Olson, who was a beast of an athlete. And he went from track to bobsled. And I always laughed it off. He compared us as athletes. He's like, oh, Messler, you're you're like Rob and da-da-da. And I was at University of Florida as a track athlete. What did bobsled have to do with me? Yeah, 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 of course. And you're sitting on that couch and desperate times call for desperate measures. And I had this little spark in the back of my brain, uh, Clayton had, Jerry had since moved on to Auburn and he was gone. And it'd been years since I'd heard Rob Olson's name or can be compared to a bobsled athlete. And next thing I knew, I was pecking away with my left hand, my off hand, finding the Olympic committee's address, which in 2000 was not easy. Um, finding the, finding an email, which again, there was no contact forms in 2000. Like I had to find it on Yahoo and get to the website and copy and paste the whatever email address they had on there. And 
emailed the Olympic Committee and said, I'm this big, this strong, this fast. In fact, my newsletter just last week that went out included that email because the day after we won gold, the, the coach who fielded that email at USA Bobsled and the email back to me the next day in 2000 had kept that email in his system. Uh, little did I know, and as all we all bobsleigh athletes know, you know, federations get hundreds of those a year. Yeah, some, yeah. you know, some some athletes, some people thinking they could do this because, of course, we saw it on television and think anybody can do that. Um, and uh, and then I went from there. They said, "You gotta, yeah, you're the right frame, structure, size. You just gotta gain some weight." And I was a scrawny little 183, 184 pound decathlete at that point. Um, and off I went. Amazing. I mean, I mean. You really earn your spot. Like I say, there, 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 are, there are athletes these days who are going to be. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Helen Francic from the from the, the Netherlands, who's about 14 years old, and he's going to have no idea how the hell you found those things without Google and without anything else. And you had to work for it. You had to. You had. It was there, no one was coming out and recruiting me. There was no social media posts that would like hop into my feed if I was a track athlete. Yeah. Um, you had to. I had to want to keep going. I had to want to not give up sport. Like I had to. I had to really, really want it and. And I really just wasn't ready. Like I wasn't ready to be done. I felt like I hadn't accomplished the things I wanted to accomplish. You're a national champion in the U.S. in track and field. That's meaningful. That's a hard thing to do. <laughs> like the, the high school pool of athletes in America is ginormous, and they're beasts. Um, and I just felt like I had been a failure. So I like bobsled was my, you know, just like many of us, right? Bobsled was our savior for continuing sport. Um, and little did I know, you know, I'd spend ten years doing it. Definitely, and, well, and that mental approach would have stood you in good stead for bobsleigh, right? Because it is a, it is an absolute. I mean, if you, every sport will talk about themselves as being a sport of perseverance, but bobsleigh certainly, because bobsleigh, there's no glamour in bobsleigh. You know, it's it's a labour sport, right? You're lifting sleds, moving things. You're in the cold, you're in the wet, you're in the, all this sort of stuff. And and then when you get to race day, you're in lycra and caffeined out your eyeballs, and it all melts away, right? And you just right. wait to race. You can't wait to do yep. that yep. thing, empty the tank, that thing you've trained so mm -hmm. hard for. Um, and yeah, yep, and yep. well, hence the birth of TBM because it's about time you got more credit for it, right? But um, right. Or certainly people saying about how good these people are rather than just, you know, horsing off the pilot the whole time. Yeah, give them, I love it, man. Give them a platform and show people that these are some of the, I, I, in the US, we always compare athletes to NFL players. Like those are our, those are our beasts here. And I'm like, look, I'll put a bobsledder, I'll put a brakeman, a, bob, a bobsled push athlete in an NFL combine and they will beat 99% of the athletes out there as long as you only keep us to straight and up. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> don't make us go sideways. Don't make us catch a ball. Don't make, exactly. make us run a pattern. There'll be cruising ligaments you, up the wall. Yeah, straight and up. That that one that one line that one linear linear path, path where we can we beat, can beat almost good. almost anybody out there. That's it. No, brilliant, Steve. No, that's great. Um, so I mean, so like, yeah. So that's that's your your sporting journey. So we know you were you know obviously immensely successful um, young multi eventer um, in track and field and uh, and went through a pretty crap time like a lot of multi-eventers do right you know you've got 10 events to get through um yep. it is inevitable yep. in the end that you you get beaten up um yep. but you did um but you had you had obviously then that amazing journey into bobsleigh and like you say did you, you touched on it a second ago in, in the intro there but you're um from falling flat on your face in 06 to obviously the glory of 2010 so just what was the what was the change there for people who don't know yeah we um you know i, I can remember walking off the track in 06 in torino and furious Furious, pissed, sad, ashamed, mad, angry—all of those, th all of those feelings. Um, we had been gold, silver, gold in the World Cups going in to to Torino. We hadn't finished outside of the top six in probably, I think, maybe all four, all four of the years uh, in World Cups there. Um, and we got seventh place in Torino. We got beat by USA two, 
which ironically was driven by Steve Holcomb. And when I walked off that track, no one wanted to interview me. No one wanted to talk to me except for my hometown paper. And my hometown, my hometown paper, I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, which is a, for the Europeans out there, Buffalo is a city that's by Toronto. It's just south of Toronto on the American side of the border by Niagara Falls would be an area that folks would be familiar with. About six and a half hours uh, drive to the, to the west, west northwest of New York City. And um, this little city, you know, never won anything, never won anything. Literally, literally Buffalo is famous in America for having lost four Super Bowls in a row in the NFL. And yeah, it's, that's what everybody knows about Buffalo. And I remember talking to the reporter and I had said, like, you know, it, it, it was so hard because how many times do you get a chance to win the Olympic Games? Like how many times do you get the opportunity where you walk to the game, walk to the line of the Olympic Games and if you do your job, you're going to win. That that I figured I would never have a chance again, right? You get it, you get it. Zero somewhere between zero and one, um, and I never thought I would have a chance again. And I said that I was like, it, it's really, really hard right now to think that we blew this opportunity, that that this culmination of my sport career is now fell flat, and I'm likely never going to get a chance again. But I'm going to learn from it, and if I do get another chance, I'm going to make sure that I know what we did wrong. And I'm going to make sure that I like help craft the team to make sure that we are prepared to, to overcome those things. And, you know, four year over that four year path, you know, I knew it at the time where we had a pretty relatively dysfunctional team. Um, and we were, we didn't have our, we didn't, we didn't have a cohesiveness where when you're warming up, you want to be able to warm up and pass one of the guys in your team and have these, the presence of that teammate calm your nerves yeah 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 we we didn't have that in fact the presence of some of us rose our nerves and so we knew i knew that we had to figure out how to do that we need to find a place where the four of us were were, were actually friends because ultimately what i learned was day-to-day -day, world cup to world cup as a four-man team you can get along and you can get along or not get along and you know what on a day-to-day -day basis it doesn't really matter uh, even world cups doesn't really matter but when the screws tighten and it's the Olympic Games and the pressure is ratcheted up and your hopes and dreams are on the line. If you if you don't have some cohesiveness, the cracks will show. And that's what happened to us in Torino is the cracks showed. And ultimately, that was a big thing. That So, I mean, that that four-man team that we had, the night train that we had, um, Holke, myself, Kurt, uh, and uh, Justin Olson, and Holcomb, as, as many of us out here know, has since passed away. The four of us had something special where we could where we could work really hard together in the gym, we could work really hard together in the ice house, and we could party really hard together at the at the club. And we could do that in a functional way. We could do that in a way that didn't interrupt our training, that didn't that didn't, you know, increase our our, you know, chance to get hurt. But boy oh boy, we knew how to blow off steam together and um, you know, and ultimately that was a, a formula that worked for us. No, I think that's awesome. And you actually preached to the choir. I'm a, I'm an absolute huge believer in uh, group cohesion over individual stars. You know, because uh, we see it in every nation. We talked, we touched on this actually in the last podcast with Jimmy Reed, uh, one yep. you know, USA Breakman. And mm -hmm. uh, he was saying, you know, it's this problem sort of endemic in national teams where we do so much focus on the individual push. Now, obviously, there has to be some point where you are, you know, drawing a line and saying, right, we need to individually see what physically these people can do. Can you push or not? Yeah. But it yeah. is so true. We see it time and time again. You know, number rank number one, two, three push guy doesn't necessarily make the best crew. And sometimes you put in a guy maybe came seventh or eighth at the testing and the sled goes faster. But you might find those guys are friends. You know, there's there's a huge to be, amount to be said for, for team cohesion and um, and certainly in bobsleigh in a sport, which I don't know, maybe because it's 
so dangerous. Maybe it's because there's so much on the line. Maybe it's because you know you've got four seconds, circa five seconds. Yeah. Do your job, and then that's it done. And it's almost if you don't empty the tank full, if you don't give the pilot that velocity, if you don't get that done, or if you load like shit and you skew mm-hmm. the sled out the spurs, like yeah. you yeah. cock that up. You know, it's a, it's it's a huge thing. So yeah, you've got to count on those guys big time. And um and I think the ones who don't quite get that are the ones that probably never quite make it. Who just go, well, I just need to be the best athlete I can be, and then I'll be great on the sled. Like, yeah, it's not enough. It's not yeah. enough. No, you know what? I mean, you you got to be really really big, fast, strong for that to be enough. Like you you got to be you got to be a big 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 boy in order to, in order to make that work. Um, and ultimately, we're all big boys and we're all fast. And we're all great athletes. So there is no, there is nobody who's big enough and strong enough to be able to do that relative to the field. I mean, if you're competing against high schoolers, sure. Um, but ultimately that's the thing is, you know, I, I hear from guys, you know, that's, that guy's a beast. He's fast. He's strong. I'm like, Hey, you know what? We're all fast and strong. And I think that's the thing about Brakeman is like, we're all fast and strong. There's some guys are a little bit faster. Some guys are a little bit stronger, but we're all fast and strong enough. Um, it's, it's how do you build your team and how do you make things work? And that's such a key point, building the team, because I was so, I hated that. So in my track and field time, in my mm-hmm. training group, and I love my training group. I, I, I was very lucky to work with some, some amazing athletes and some amazing coaches. And, and one of my training groups in particular were just misguided in their approach to how that they gave, in my opinion, they gave away their energy to everybody else. They, they, there was a phrase called the truth. So if somebody ran fast, oh, they're the truth. They're the next thing. They're going to be the biggest thing. I'm like, to the point in the end in our WhatsApp group, I actually kind of put my head above the parapet a bit. I was like, can we stop giving so much ratings to everyone that's not in this group? Can we start actually lifting the people that we train with? Because they never did. And it was always, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was like a, a fear thing or because they actually felt not so confident really in themselves and what they could yep, achieve yep. and that they needed to keep everyone around them down a bit to feel better, mm-hmm. but <clears> trump <throat> everybody else. We had, yeah, to your, to your point, sorry, yeah, to your point. And we had an amazing training group back then. We had, um, we had Lascelles Brown, so, you know, King uh, from Canadian. So I trained in Calgary uh, and we had Stu McMillan was coaching out of here and we trained in Calgary and we had Americans and Canadians that were in training groups together. And our training group was Lascelles Brown, myself, a guy named Dan Humphreys. So Kaylee Humphreys, ex-husband, a Brit, uh, Brit turned Canadian, who was just a ginormous beast of a human being. Um, we had from, you know, back earlier in the days, Pavel Jovanovic, we had brought Craigsburg come through, like guys who were on USA one, Canada one, push athletes, um, all training together. That's really and cool. I mean, Lascelles and I were probably two of the fastest speed wise guys in bobsleigh. And we were in the same training group together for, for years. Like that just made us better. There was no one else out there that we, that, that we know that or do that for. And you know that, and then also we had Kaylee Humphreys in that group and we had Shelly Ann Brown, who was also an Olympic medalist push athlete. Um, and Alana Myers Taylor would come in and out back in her push athlete days when she was a super duper beast. Now she's a super duper driver. Driver she's beast. Just another level and Alana. This was that training. This was that training group. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we all worked, we all trained together. We all went out together. We all did everything together. And it was, um, it was just a, the training experience was amazing. That's, you know, that's something I really regret about it's one of the big hits of the pandemic for me personally, because since mm-hmm. certainly since doing um, TBM as well, um, I've definitely solidified a lot of my international friendships and stuff and really got on because I think people have really bought into it. They're like, wow, somebody actually wants to speak for us and shout about us because because it was all inspired by them. You know, it was a, partly a personal frustration thinking like, God, you know, I can run the bottom end of 10 seconds and I can, you know, I can do this stuff and, I, and nobody knows what I do. And then I looked at like Thorsten Margis and Eric Frankie and like Mats Mignis and Latvia, like no one knows who the Latvians are. 
and they're they're mm-hmm. they're outrageous, outrageous yeah. push athletes. Yeah. You know, and I just thought yeah. this is this is all so wrong. Um, and uh, and, and I want to yeah, and, and I said and and so solidifying those international friendships, I was like, we like we were wanting to arrange summer training camps and have stuff. Well, actually, for the first time in years, um, or certainly way before my time, I didn't obviously I didn't know you guys were doing that. You know, to have international training groups, actually the best in the business from across nations coming together to make super groups, which is what you did. And I can remember, and I can remember just, I mean, I still live in Calgary today and from where I'm living right now and I'm looking out the window, I could see my, could see where my old training residence was. It's now been bulldozed and much nicer house than the old lousy place that we used to have. Um, But in with the, you know, we're at the summer Olympics right now. And I can remember 2008, that training group, we brought them, we would go and train at, you know, University of Calgary up the hill. And then we'd head down we'd head back down to my house for lunch and we'd watch the Olympics together. And we would watch the, you know, I always wanted to watch NBC, which is the American broadcaster. At the time, CTV was the Canadian. The Canadians wanted to watch the Canadians. So we'd flip back and forth. But what it did was for all of us is it gave us like this cultural understanding of each other in a way that when you watch, when you watch the NBC, the CBC broadcaster, the CTV broadcaster, the Canadians, um, Canadians would have a different mentality of, you know, I got fourth place. They're getting interviewed. They got fourth place. You know, I'm I'm proud of the work that I did. And it's the kind of thing at us at Classroom Champions that I'm proud of, that I, it's the kind of things that I want our athletes to talk to their kids about, which is that they were proud of their effort. They put in as, as they left it all out there. On the American side, you'd see somebody who got fourth place and they were furious. They were livid and they were saying that furiousness on national air. But there was a part of there was a big part of me that respected that, and I remember turning to Kaylee Humphreys and I said to said Kay, I said little girl, if you get fourth place in Vancouver and you say how happy you are to be there, I'm going to jump across the screen and, <laughs> and strangle you. Like I want you to like I want you I want and that's and that I think there's a difference there between figuring out how to articulate it. But you got to you know heading to the Olympics, whether you're a track athlete or a, bob, a bobsled athlete, I want. We want to be able to, you want to want it so bad. You have to want it so bad that those first 30 minutes, first 60 minutes, you can't articulate how upset you are. You just can't. And that was what 2006 was for me. And that was what 2010. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I've seen separate the best, you know, the best push athletes from the legends and is the legends just refuse to lose. And when they lose, it guts them. So they remember that. And I can, I mean, I used Kevin Kuzke who won the gold medal in 2006 with Andre. I used watching him on the podium in 2006 in the back of my brain from 2006 to 2010, every single time I had to get in the squat rack for the last set. And every time I, you know, like you, you, you're in there, you, you barely have anything left in the tank, but you know, if you can just get this weight up, you're going to get better today. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's, I think that's the thing as a retired, you know, 10, 11 year retired at this point, I think that's the thing I miss. I miss those moments where like you could just, if I can do this one thing, I'm going to get better. And that's, I'm jealous, Greg, of, you know, I'm jealous of your next, what X amount of months that you got left until Beijing here is you get that every day. And that's pretty neat. Oh, definitely. And you know, you're, again, you're already preaching to the choir. Like I'm, I'm very similar mentally to that to you there. I think, um, I, I know when I, when I retire, whenever that's going to be, if it's next year, if it's the year after, if we get funding coming in or whatever, I know that I'm going to miss that fire, that, 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 that extra little bit to bring more out of yourself than you had before. But equally, mm-hmm. I mean, that brings me nicely onto the next part of this, where I do, you know, I want to make sure we're getting about Classroom Champions and your next step. And because yeah, yeah. I am looking forward also to the next stage and the next chapter after my sporting career, I'm scared about it. Like, I know, because I know, again, mm-hmm. this will resonate with a lot of athletes, you know, it's, it's scary taking the next step because you've had 
Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know some people have an institutionalized experience of sport, but certainly there is a, a certain degree of um, there is that you live in that that vibe and that fear of the unknown. You don't know this what yeah, all the yeah. sacrifice you're putting in, what it's going to come out at the end and stuff. But with Olympic dreams, you kind of go for it anyway, and there is still that ultimate end goal of making that games, winning that medal, and it's that kind of just trumps everything else that might come along the way, any adversity that comes along the way. You hurdle it, right? Moving out of that and into the real world, you're sort of like, well, okay, what is my goal now? What is next? What is What am I aiming for? What are my values? Do I want to make money? Do I want to do make a difference? Do I want to solve a problem? Do I, you know, so for you, you have obviously absolutely smashed the real world and uh, I came up with Classroom Champions. So, I mean, do your best to condense that amazing thing into this next little bit because I want to hear all about it. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Um, uh, you know, I'll go back to where you started here, which is I also had no idea when I was retiring. I had no idea what I was going to do. It hadn't thought, it hadn't occurred to me that I should think about it. Um, you guys are a lot more equipped today. Um, I think society and sport does a lot better job at least putting that in your head. Nobody was talking to me about what I should be doing. Aggressive parents as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair, fair, yeah. Especially if you're still living with them. Your dad, mom, and like, you know, you got to figure something out here because the ticket ends. Um, I had no, I had no idea. I was, I was very, very ill prepared. What I did have was the skills that I had been building, which was understanding team, understanding leadership, understanding solving problems that are social and emotional problems that we did from the story I told about how we looked at the team from 2006 to 2010. Those were social problems amongst the team and emotional problems amongst the team about how we work together. And then I also was a video tech guy like you, like I was out there making videos. I was the team videographer and photographer. And I also had a sister who, um, named Lee, Dr. Lee Parisi, who was getting her PhD at the time, uh, in education. Then I wound up marrying a woman who, you know, Dr. Dr. Rihanna Messler, who's getting her degree and, you know, has her postdoc and PhD in psychology. That being said, that's the base. What classroom champions does is our mission is to empower students, power kids, social, emotional, socially, emotionally, and academically through the mentorship and journey and mindsets of world-class athletes. And that's what we've been able to do and bring to schools in a way that is sustainable for teachers and schools and takes the things that athletes are amazing at, setting goals and persevering and being a leader um, and getting involved in, in you know, community and giving back and paying it forward. We've been able to synthesize that down into a curriculum and into mentorship programs through virtual relationships and connections with athletes who are on the path. Alana Myers Taylor has been a Bob has been a classroom champions mentor for years. Uh, Lauren Gibbs uh, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna go through the whole list because I'll I I'll, I will forget people, um, but it's been incredible because we're actually able to help teachers and schools and school districts and and uh, put the lessons from athletes into school in a meaningful way, uh, and do it and help kids become the things that they need to become to each other and to their schoolwork and to the things afterwards. And we've had over 200 athletes, get this, over 200 athletes, Olympians, Paralympians, NFL players, NHL players, NCAA student athletes volunteer to do classroom champions. We have reached, uh, we reached annually over 100,000 kids in our curriculum and mentorship programs. We reached over 5 million kids this past spring through partnerships and content with NBC Olympics and the NHL um, and you know other amazing organizations. And it's been, um, it's been fantastic. Like it's been really, really neat, and the athletes have been awesome at it. Definitely, but I think that's all amazing. What, what, what you and your sister and 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 everyone you've had involved in in founding and setting up this thing, you've obviously been so effective at your your messaging and with with what you wanted to do and what you wanted classroom champions to achieve. 
you know, such that you've had over 200 prof largely professional athletes who are, you know, I, these, these days I say are probably much more socially conscious. We're seeing a lot more like uh, recently in the England football team. Uh, they're a lot yeah. more socially aware. They want to do more like we've got a very famous player, Rash Marcus Rashford, who's done a lot for getting the government's U-turn on free school meals and stuff like that. The, the people are a lot more socially conscious. And But, you know, over the years, like, I think a lot of time athletes are gen tend to be a fairly self-centered bunch. And hey, absolutely really absolutely. inspired people to come and volunteer their time for that. It's obviously yeah. a great thing. And I think that, that cause. Yeah. No, thank you. And I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I think the thing that's been inspiring to me is that, like, we started this because there are plenty of things that you can do as an athlete to put your name on something or help elevate the elevate a cause. But we have more to offer than just that. We have more to offer athletes in, especially those that are in the moment. Like I don't want kids to have listened to a gray haired old man like me telling my story from 10 years ago. I want kids to live the path. I want you to tell kids that, you know what? It's hard. It's hard this month. I'm hurt. I'm just trying to walk again because you know, when you're, when you're 10 years old and you see somebody, whether it's, you know, at, whether it's at the, on the, at the Olympic games, we want them to show them that it's not just two and a half weeks of glory on television, that it's a process and it's hard. It takes a long time. Uh, and we want athletes, you know, whether they're football players or as I would say, soccer players, um, we want the ones who are in the moment who don't have much time. So that's why we use technology to do this and we make it easy and accessible. But ultimately we started because I used to go into schools and do the thing all of us do. I'd go in, I'd give a talk, maybe slightly embarrassing because kids are told they should be excited because of who I am or what I do, but they don't really know me. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then, and then I leave and then I give the old, like, if one or two kids listened, it's worth my time. And then I have no idea if anything I ever did or said made a difference. And as an athlete, that's not the way we work. I go to the gym to get results today and get results tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I don't do anything without intention and purpose and, and results. But for some reason I can go to a school and just give a talk and leave and then never see those kids again. And that's what we wanted to do. And what, what we've done is we have, you know, we see amazing things. We see improvements in attendance in kids. Well, you know what? Attendance is tied to high school graduation more than test scores are when kids are little. Uh, we see improvements in what's called social emotional regulation of kids and development. Well, you know what? When you're five, six, seven, eight years old, those skills predict whether you are going to graduate from high school, whether you're going to have a job, whether you're going to have dependence on drugs and alcohol, whether you're going to have to rely on the social safety net. So we're able to show athletes, hey, look, you did these things virtually and here's the results you got. And it's been, from an athlete's perspective, it's been amazing. And you know, our goal for Costume Champions is that we work with the Premier League, that we work with, um, that we work with all of the sports leagues across the world. Because what we have is a way for currently competing athletes to give back in a way that is easy for them and meaningful for schools, which is really all we're trying to do. You've just, you've, I mean, you've just absolutely nailed it. It's, 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 uh, yeah, an incredibly impactful, valuable thing with easy access. I mean, yeah, it's got to be easy for it's got to be easy for athletes, man. You guys are focused. You're busy. Um, you're traveling the world. You don't have time to go back time after time to, a, to the same school. You don't have time to drive 30 minutes across the city, speak for an hour and drive 30 minutes back. You don't have two hours to, to do that on a re regularly consistent basis. So these kids, kids can get to know you. Um, so yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for asking. Thanks for bringing it up. I would love, I mean, all you athletes out there, um, whether it is bobsleigh or whether it's beyond, like we got places for you to, to make an impact around here. So, so. Is it, how international is it? So you, you're in USA, Canada, and is it, um, 
Costa Rica. We, we have schools. We have schools using classroom champions in over thirty countries across the world. Uh, our flagship programs are the U.S. and Canada. We support some programming. We have in the past Costa Rica. There's a, a sister program called My Olympic Friend, run by the Guatemalan Olympic Committee that we support. Um, but our, but again, our goal is that this is easy enough, transferable enough, and our platform is broad enough, and the technology is good enough now that you know we could very easily set up camp in the UK. We could very easily set up camp in, in Europe. So we're starting to look for those opportunities and look for the, the the foundations and the companies to support and then the teams and the athletes to get behind it and be involved um, because schools ultimately will, schools ultimately eat it up. Yeah, definitely. And well, and, and as well, they, as well, they should, because it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a winning formula. Yeah. We, we help them get at, we help them get outcomes for their kids, which ultimately that's, a, you know, kids need, in order in order to, to, break the cycle of poverty, you have to graduate from high school. You have to. Um, and ultimately, like we're improving, we're not only improving kids' social emotional abilities, like empathy and goal setting and teamwork and perseverance skills that they'll use in life afterwards, but they're getting better test scores. They're getting better, better, getting better grades. They're, they're coming to school more, their attendance up and their and bullying is down and their behavior issues are down. So you really, really, it's really hard to learn if you're not in school or if you're stuck in the principal's office because you got in trouble. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? Again, if you're not in school, you, you don't get the access to a potentially life-changing thing like this. I know I know. when mm-hmm. I've gone to talk to schools, I'm like, wow, I, I didn't start sports until I was 21, so I really slipped through the net. And oh, I think, wow. if I was at school and I, I just messed about, right? So I was one of those kids. And I just think, if I'd had a local Olympian come and talk to me, and, and uh, that would have been worth its weight in gold to me to see, because yeah, it's yeah. sort of... I guess for classroom champions, and when you're taking them through the process and showing, you're you're sort of shattering the mystique a bit, right? You're sort of taking the elevated status of the Olympian and this, this unattainable thing, going, no, it is attainable. You, it, it someone's got to do it. You know, it's yeah. like it, it is there for you. Exactly. In our mentorship program, where we assign athletes to schools and classrooms across across their country, <clears throat> the the first thing that te- the athletes talk about isn't a goal setting lesson or a perseverance lesson. It is literally just introducing themselves. These are my favorite colors. This is my favorite food. These are the subjects I loved when I was your age. These are the subjects I hated when you was your age. We want to take them off, take us athletes off the podiums, off the magazine covers, and 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 put them eye to eye with these kids. I don't look. We're not teaching bobsled. We're not teaching you know how to push a bobsled. I, I tell kids, I tell adults quite often. Look, there's not many more worthless skills in life than then learning like- how to push for five seconds and sit down for a minute. That is, that is not a skill that is going to help you get a job in life. But the, the things that you need to do to learn how to get to the top of that and get through all the clutter and keep the wolves at bay and do all the things, especially as push athletes that you have to do, um, those skills are the skills that we got to teach kids. Because if kids can have the mindset of a push athlete where they're coming into school every day working hard, where they're turning up and they're looking at their coach or their teacher and that coach or teacher is telling them what they're doing wrong and they don't feel bad about it they don't get defensive they go thanks coach and then they fix it yeah yeah. you can actually change that and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to change culture at schools we're trying to change culture for kids and teachers and, and change trajectories and the hundreds of athletes that volunteer they know that they get that um and they also know that like we meet them where they are so they don't have to drive across the city but they can actually have schools that they can communicate with on a regular basis whether it's on our private platform whether it's on our private um, social media platforms that we use to, to connect. So, uh, yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. And, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm excited about what you guys are doing in the break, though. That's for sure. 
Well, well, again, well, the from a brakeman angle for what the kids are learning from from Bob Sutter, certainly they'll learn humility, right? Because you put all that work in, and then all the glory goes to the pilot. So you got to be mm-hmm. you got to be pretty humble to put up with that one. Obviously, I'm not very <laughs> humble, and so I started a platform to go no. Give me attention. Look how great see, that, see, that, see, that's what we need to do, actually. We have these things called Mindful Minutes, and we have a whole series that we do. And that, this is like our easiest, like our easiest low-hanging fruit for athletes to get involved is just to shoot. We have topics in 60 seconds, 60, 90 seconds, like Mindful Minutes that teachers use on a daily basis with their kids. Um, or if their kids are having a rough day, they'll bring up a Mindful Minute about anxiety or this or that. And I feel like there's something there that Brakeman could, like, what are the, what are the top 10 attributes that Brakeman need to use? Um, humility is definitely one of them, but Hey, but look, I got my gold medal sitting on that, in that bookshelf back there. And mine is the same weight size and color as the driver's was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's great. And I, I, honestly, mate, I, this, that is absolutely brilliant. And you know what, it, obviously it shows that like you say, everything, you know, the, the, the skills to push and sit in a sled are not particularly transferable to the workplace, but everything that went along with getting to that point. Is obviously major. I'm sure you're already uh, an enormously compassionate and, and decent individual, but obviously your experiences in sport have brought out something deeper in you that has taken you on a path to creating this amazing organisation, right? And, and going further and wanting to do more and do more than just going into that school. And I think it's you're an amazing uh, example and a fantastic beacon for Bobsleigh. And I'm so proud to have you on this podcast and chatting to me. And I'm so grateful for this. And um, I'm uh, and I'm speaking in a concluding tone because we're just over a half hour, which I'm militant about. But I would like to, um, so I think it'd be nice, just sign off on a note. Um, obviously, like you say, as you mentioned earlier, we did lose Hulky a couple of years ago. And it's one of my uh, eternal regrets. Not really my fault, but I was not in the game long enough to know that guy. And I wish I had been because he, by the sounds of it, was not only a fantastic guy, he was obviously an insane pilot um, with a great story. My, my teammate Sam bought me his uh, his autobiography, uh, which I've had uh, you know great pleasure reading and everything. And it'd just be nice. Just just sign us off with a couple of words about about that man. Yeah, no, um, thank you. Uh, you know, and I'll also, I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention Pavel Jovanovic. I had the opportunity to fly with six men in bobsleds uh, in the Olympic Games, and two of them have um, have lost their lives by their own hands. Um, and Steve Holcomb was, he was, you know, simultaneously a happy and, um, you know, a happy and depressed individual at the same time. Um, he was, you know, a, a functional depressive person who, found solace in a bobsled and that was his happy place when he was in a sled he didn't have to talk to anybody he didn't have to deal with anybody else he got to just be in his own place and you know i i I always picture him up there basically driving a bobsled 24 7. like that would be that would be heaven for hulky would just be driving from track to track to track and um you know getting a good push from all of us over the years that gave him his pushes and you know, I think he's a cautionary tale. Um, we got to take care of ourselves, guys. Um, we got to we got to make sure that if we need help, we talk to somebody. Doesn't mean you got to broadcast it if you're not comfortable broadcasting it. Um, I've experienced depression. Um, I've had to bury far too many athlete friends and Olympic teammates. Um, Speedy Peterson is another guy in 2011 who who won a silver medal in freestyle aerials in 2010, and following summer called the police and let him know where they could find his body before he blew his head off. And that is, that's the reality of the, you know, the head trauma we go through um, and all that. So let Hulky be a cautionary tale. Let's put him up there. Let's put him up on the pedestal. Um, let's slide Hulky's 50-50 and Whistler, slide it hard. Uh, once the European, once you Europeans let us bring the bobsled tour back to, to North America, but um, 
good, good, nice, great shot, great way to end. Uh, one of the, one of the legends. He was a brakeman too. He's remember he was a brakeman first, and then he was a pilot. Um, uh, one of the legends who is a you know a good towel for us all that we can be great, and at the same time we got to take care of ourselves. So, you know, get after it, boys and girls out there. You guys got uh, not too much longer until the next Olympic Games come. So. I'm I'm stoked to to watch you all and I'm stoked to support and I love the break and I love all the stuff you guys do with the Bregman Greg and yeah, let's get after it this season, guys. That's great, mate. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much. Um that's us.